This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Gordon Neufeld is a developmental psychologist and the author of Hold On To Your Kids, Why Parents Need to Matter More Than Peers. He's spent over 40 years studying child development. And as the legend goes, while Neufeld had no real interest in writing a book, our good friend, Dr. Gabor Mate, who's also been on the podcast, told him that he absolutely needed to get his thoughts and theories out there. And so he decided to co-write the book with him. As parents, we put so much weight on the importance of socializing our children, for them to be well-liked and to have friends which often results in their becoming peer-attached. That is, looking to their peers for guidance, care, and stability. And while having friends is important, Gordon says it was never meant to be the most important relationship. Today, Gordon joins us to discuss what happens when children look to their friends instead of orbiting around the adults in their lives. He talks us through why, as parents, rather than being hyper-focused on doing things right, we should be turning our full attention to nurturing a relationship with our child. Otherwise, despite the strength of our love, sometimes things can go awry. And for those of you who do not have kids, I think there's something to find in the conversation as well. I thought a lot about the way that I was raised and how it has formed me as a person. We all live in a stressful world. It's our ability to recover, to get our feelings back and not to be wounded so severely that it shuts down our feelings, the very thing that we need to become fully human and humane. Let's get to my chat with Dr. Gordon Neufeld. Now it seems it's probably a really interesting time to talk about this book because we're all living with our kids in a way that we weren't before COVID and probably peer attachments are 
on fire in a good way. But I also like the thing that I love about the book, even if you don't have kids, it's such a fascinating way to think about your own childhood and how you were Mm -hmm. raised. And so it's a really powerful book. So thank you for writing it. I know it's been a while. It's been a minute. I'm glad you read it and I'm glad you enjoyed it. (laughs) It also is nice because it it takes the blame off of parents who, for the most part, as you point out, are really like really trying to do their best and in some ways are theoretically like more armed and more equipped than any previous generation. Yet like we're, we're failing and struggling and our children are unhappy. So can you take us back to the thesis of the book and, and what attachment really even means? We thought that humans had survival needs and that survival needs were first. In actual fact, we're programmed for togetherness to be, and togetherness specifically, hierarchically in cascading care, that because attachment is the delivery system of that care. It, very simply, it's the way nature takes care of us by getting us to take care of each other. Mm-hmm. But the instincts, to seek care and to be taken care of and to take care are instincts of attachment. And so this was a huge discovery that, no, it didn't have to do with peers. It had to do with children attaching to those responsible for them, whoever was taking care of them. And that's the only way they became receptive to care. And it's the only way their parents and teachers and daycare providers became truly empowered to care. And so it's a very old attachment dance, the oldest in the world, uh, dance in the world. But it, it, it is hierarchical in nature and not horizontal. So this puts peer attachments in a completely different light. Yeah. And so the idea is that culturally, we have these incredibly strong familial groups and that kids yes. stayed within the family and that we weren't, we didn't really have to think about it. We, it was a natural order of things. And as we become more fragmented and reprioritized or put our focus on socializing our children and making sure that they have a lot of friends, they have become attached to their peers and not yes. to us. And we've lost, we've lost our relationship. Yeah, and, and with that relationship, we lose our confidence. And with that loss of confidence, then children fall through the attachment cracks even more. And so we're into the third generation where our children are beginning to orbit around their peers and peer groups instead of the adults responsible for them. So it's become so ubiquitous, so absolutely normal that in a culture like ours that worships normality, it completely eclipses the unnaturalness, the enormity of this particular attachment phenomena. Yeah. And I thought it's such it's so fascinating, too, when you outline how children like other animals, because I think that so often we forget that we're animals, but that we that children like ducks or any other animal have to orient and have to attach and that a duck will follow a motorized dog around if that's what is there for it to attach to. Mm -hmm. And that we we've just forgotten that or taken it for granted and that. But that also, you can't move in two directions simultaneously. So we are, we can't, when a child becomes peer attached, we simply can't compete because they have, they can only have one true north. And when we give that up, 
when we relinquish that control, we've lost our power to orient and guide our children. It's, it's not that we can't have many attachments and not that children can't have attachments with their peers. They can, but not if their attachments compete with those that they need to be taken care of, to the adults in their life, to their parents and grandparents. That's where the problem is. It's just like your spouse, your partner can have many attachments uh, to the dog, to golf, to their family, to all kinds of things, their party, their ideology. But if those attachments begin to compete with uh, the attachment in a marriage to that working relationship, then it will interfere with the ability to take care of each other in that relationship. And as adults, that is quite significant. But for children, that is huge. It's Mm -hmm. absolutely huge. And so we have children who aren't experiencing being taken care of the conditions that are conducive for their growth. So it's this competing attachment. The relationship between children should be more akin to the relationship between the planets. Uh, All the planets are revolving around the sun. It's the only way the sun can take care of us, hold us in orbit and so on. And, And so that's the deal. If the planets began to orbit around each other, there'd be chaos in the universe. These students used to, in times past, orbit around adults in common, be it the teacher in the classroom they were all attached to, be it a grandparent, a matriarch, a patriarch. The uh, children were in proper relationship with each other, not the most important, because the more children matter to each other, the more they get hurt and the less they are cared for and shielded. So peer attachments can play a part, but they mustn't compete with the attachments a child needs. Yeah. And the way that it seems is that this happens subtly when we're not even aware. We think we're doing our best as parents and loving our children unconditionally as much as we're able. And that it just happens slowly over time and that it almost seems like it's contagious. And so if your child is orbiting with another child who has become peer attached or is needing to feel dominant, and we can talk about bullies, I think, later in the conversation, but then your child can get pulled into their orbit. Um, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I thought, like, I loved this paragraph, if you don't mind if I read this to you from Mm -hmm. your book, far from being qualified to orient anyone else, children are not even capable of self-orienting in any realistic sense of that word. Our children's peers are not the ones we want them to depend on. They are not the ones to give our children a sense of themselves, to point out right from wrong, to distinguish fact from fantasy, to identify what works and what doesn't, and to direct them as to where to go and how to get there. And I also think it's important, like you you talk about how disordered our children have become, which I think is all very clear to us, kids murdering kids and rampant bullying and the ADHD and depression, suicidality, and it's not a good picture. And you also make, I think, a very wise point, which is that children, it's not that children have become more cruel or their ability to be cruel has always been present. It's that something else, and I think it's that's why this book is such a light bulb, it's something else. It's that when our kids become, when they start fixating on their peer who's in not in power control of themselves, much less in a position to guide anyone else, 
things go Lord of the Flies, right? Like things go completely awry and they're victimizing each other without even really having consciousness about it. Yeah, absolutely. When a child starts caring about his peers, it sets him up for getting badly hurt. And peers were never meant to be responsible for each other. So that wounding is unbearable. Mm -hmm. And what the brain does when in a wounding scenario is it, it inhibits the feelings. It cuts off our feelings. And so our children are losing their feelings. And that is that has huge implications in arrested emotional maturation, in alarm-based problems, anxiety, adrenaline-based problems, and in aggression and bullying and so on. It's huge implications. But it's when peers matter too much. When a child becomes attached to their peers, they become absolutely frenzied about it. I have to see my friend. I have to do this. I have to be with it. You don't understand. And because we're so used to take, we've lost our confidence. And so we're so used to taking our cues from our, our children. We actually think this is what they need. It's not what they need. They need us. They need the adults in their life. They need to be attached to us. But we take the cues from them, and then we continue to aid and enable the very thing that is causing the trouble in the first place. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. And the idea of them, if they're attached to us and we're providing the moral compass, it's that when they go out into the world and contact the world and they get hurt or they get bullied or they get left out, that we can firm them up, right? And reorient them and tuck them in so that it doesn't wound them to the point of shutdown. And then they can go back out into the world and not feel bullied into suicide or completely feel like they have no sense of self that's that their entire sense of self is predicated on whether their fellow 12 year olds are accepting them or not yes yes that's that's exactly it in being attached to the adults who are taking care of them presuming that the adults aren't doing the wounding Mm. in being attached to them it creates it shields them against the wounds so the wounds don't go to the quick it's not that they don't have hurt feelings. Of course they do. It's not that they don't feel injured. And 
their you know their dignity uh, affronted but it doesn't go to the quick they're able to recover and that's the main thing we all live in a stressful world it's our ability to recover to get our feelings back and not to be wounded so uh, so severely that it shuts down our feelings the very thing that we need to become fully human and humane yeah so how can you tell if a child is totally shut down? Is that when they almost appear not sociopathic, but that is it when they've been wounded and not recovered and now they're still being wounded, but they're not conscious of it almost like they're not, they don't let the feelings, they don't feel the feelings. Yes. The first part of it is they no longer talk about hurt feelings, no longer talk about missing. They're more likely to say, I don't care, doesn't matter. They're more likely to no longer feel uh, sad or disappointed when uh, things don't work in their life. So they start losing these tender feelings. Because they're not as upset anymore and they don't talk about being hurt, we usually interpret that in a positive way. And that's the insidious nature of this. Because feelings have been the enemy for so long. That's where our suffering is. That's where our hurting is. We haven't realized until lately that feelings are the engine of maturation. They're the center of everything, even brain development. They're the core issue in emotional health and well-being. So we're still going under the impression that, oh, my child doesn't feel so bad anymore. He isn't complaining about things. He doesn't talk about missing and so on and so on. And we think that is good. Actually, emotional health is very loud and messy. The child talks a lot about feelings. As soon as they have a safe place, all their feelings come back. The second level of problems is when the feelings go missing, then it generates all kinds of problems that require a feeling for the resolution. Frustration turns foul and starts turning into attacking energy, self-attack, attacking others, and so on. And we see that in spades. Feelings help connect things to events. Alarm cannot be connected to what is scaring us. And so we start developing obsessions and and then agitation. And then we get so numbed out, we finally are seeking adrenaline or are attracted to alarming activities because it gives us a rush of adrenaline without feeling vulnerability. Now, again, we don't tend to see the core problem here, the lack of feelings, nor do we see that the child has fallen through the attachment cracks and who needs us in the worst way. And so it's getting past all of that symptomology and being able to store, restore the relationship with the child so their heart can soften, so that we can, we are empowered to take care of them again. And even our adolescents need us. And this is where we've been getting it wrong. We think that all adolescence is about becoming their own person, when in actual fact, it's really difficult to become your own person when you're attached to your peers, because it absolutely suffocates individuation. It's mm. more when adolescents are very attached to the adults who care about them, that what is added to this is to become their own person at the same time as keeping attached. We're having a hard time seeing these things. And that's what the excitement was about taking a, a sabbatical to try and put all the puzzle pieces together. I, I love uh, the exercise of putting puzzle pieces together. But oh my goodness, when the picture emerged, it, it was a bit of an alarming picture. Yeah. And I think as parents, and maybe it's because we're all passing this down from our own childhoods. But 
you'll you hear this all the time and you noted in the book that we are sort of compulsive maniacal about making sure that our kids have friends that they're well liked yes. that they're well accepted that they're social i know for a lot of my friends understandably and for myself even during covid it's like oh my god my kids need to socialize and where are their friends, et cetera. And we've lost the plot that yes, we can we provide that. And that maybe being bored at home with us is exactly what they need in order to develop and figure out exactly what they're interested in and the, form- the formation of all that curiosity and self-development. It's interesting in this time of pandemic, how many stories of children that are actually thriving in this is that it it tends to, for some, not all, but for those where the families are re-knitted, where they discover each other, that mom and dad and siblings and come into this this context of cascading care and all of a sudden the grandparents become more important. So there's a the stories of, of all kinds of kids that are very much thriving in this. Of course, the ones that are very peer-oriented peer are absolutely beside themselves. So those are on the social media. They get addicted uh, right away to the, the social media and so on. You can see that it never satiates. It never really relaxes. They never feel taken care of. It just goes from frenzy to frenzy. So when... And and in that moment, and I guess this is a good time because you talk about sort of family vacations, et cetera, as other good interventions for breaking the hold of peers on kids, that collecting, like, how do you know when you need to get into your kid's face, as you call it? Like, how do you know when there's a problem? How can you intervene early? And then what does it look like? Is it reclaiming afternoons and weekends as no play dates? What is that? What do you think is the best place to start? What it looks like, it it may look like the inability to even collect your child, to get their eyes, their smiles, their nods. So it may look like the failure to even do the simple greeting and engage the attachment instincts. They're not wanting to hang around you. They don't see the, the you as the answer. They're, if they're older, they're not wanting to eat at the table or be together. They're always bored when they're with you looking for some time to be apart. We all know what it feels like when somebody that's been very attached to us, we lose that attachment. Mm-hmm. We, we know it with our friends. We know it with our partners partners. The problem with children is we confused it with them being independent. We think that this is the way it should be. They should need us less. We we don't realize that uh, in our society, children are dependent for a long time. Adolescence goes up to the early 20s. It's, it's a long period where they really need to feel taken care of. So it's just being intuitive about uh, the fact that, oh my goodness, I don't feel in my child the desire, the hunger for togetherness with me, with the family. As far as where to start, now it's... depending upon what power you have, all our power to parent actually comes from the child's attachment to us. So the problem is if we've lost their attachment, we don't have any power. 
You know, they're sneaky. So the part is how to get back, how to get that power back so that we can put some limits and restrictions there. If you have sufficient power, you haven't lost your child too much, then absolutely put some restrictions in place. But it's not a matter of just restrictions in place that protect their attachments to you. It's a matter of actually getting down to the job of what attachment is about, you know, taking care of your child. Uh, giving them a sense of belonging, a sense of sameness, holding on to them when apart, providing a sense of connection. You're actually getting down to doing what attachment is about, taking care of them, because that will make it far more, far more engaging for them. Yeah. Play is a really helpful thing because play is naturally engaging. So when you can engage in a playful activity together, we are more attractive to, uh, to each other in play. So play can be a primer for the attachment. So finding something that really, a playful activity that engages the child, that's not solitary, that allows you in, and uh, that can help. Of course, if it's really serious, sometimes you just have to figure out a way of being able to, to get apart, to extricate themselves from the competition so that you can get in their face in a friendly way. And I tell the stories in the book of my own daughters at that age. My oldest daughter just turned 15 now, but she was 15 at the time that I tell the story. And the other daughter was 13 at the time where I had lost them as adolescents and had to do a little bit of wilderness one-on-one -on -one kind of experience to win them back. And, and it, it really worked. It was really a significant watershed in their own life. Yeah. And it's funny, this paragraph I thought was so striking in the context of being able to recognize it. And I feel like we are much more able to recognize it in adult context. But you write, imagine that your spouse or lover suddenly begins to act strangely, won't look mm -hmm. you in the eye, rejects physical contact, yes. speaks to you irritably in monosyllables, shuns your approaches and avoids your company. Would they mm -hmm. say to you, have you tried a timeout? Have you imposed limits and made clear what your expectations are? It would be obvious to everyone that in the context of adult interaction, you're dealing not with the behavior problem, but a relationship problem. And probably the first suspicion to arise would be that your partner was having an affair. Yes. Yeah. No, I thought so resonant. And I remember thinking back on my own childhood, sort of that those urges to pull apart from my parents which I think were probably appropriately timed closer to high school. But I also, and I, I went to boarding school where people were very peer attached, mm -hmm. but I grew up in the woods of Montana and I went to this very small, very adult attached elementary school. Mm -hmm. And so I think I was adult, very adult attached as a child. Like I didn't have that many friends, et cetera. And my parents certainly didn't prioritize playdates or anything like that. But so when I got to school, boarding school, I felt quite immune from that peer pressure. And then reading the book, I'm like, oh, that's why. I just, that's that's why. But how as adults, when you look back for, for people who are listening, who are like, oh, shit, like that was my childhood. Like, how do you recover from that? And what are the lasting implications growing up peer attached? I think as soon as you realize it, it's rebuilding the village. 
it's starting to nurture the intergenerational links that are functional or finding surrogate ones or realizing that, oh my goodness, it's, it's only family that's really forever here. Well, sometimes it, it all comes around when your children have their children. And yeah. then they then they know the answer is not their peers. <laughs> the answer is the grandparents. I discovered a lot of peer orientation in my own adolescence. I was part, more on the peripheral, but of one of the first peer orientation cultural phenomena. The beatniks, I think, were first. It was an artist-driven group, and I was in high school at that time. But then came the hippies, and I was in university at this time. And it became obvious to us that the answer was each other rather than our families. And I remember that discovery. And what was tragic at that time, when I look back at it, is I had a sibling who really needed help. He was seven years younger than me. And he really needed help. And it didn't, I was the oldest child. And it didn't even occur to me to take care of my brother because Mm -hmm. I was so preoccupied with being with my friends. My parents went through a rough stretch. My mother health-wise, they weren't available. And it would have been natural if I was adult-oriented and family-oriented to step in that place. And I, I lost, he was seven years younger than me, I lost my younger brother this year to cancer. And it would just push back again. The tragedy that often happens is that our families where care is meant to happen are torn apart by this retribalization where individuals that we should have played a very significant role in our life fell through the cracks and we fall through the cracks because we were not connected to the adults in our life that we needed at the time. Yeah, and certainly, you know, what we're happening what's happening socially is is and culturally is driving this home and making it really difficult but the story is as old as time of people having attachment breaks in their families right like a, a parent who you write about this but like being separated from your parent maybe they're sick or there's a divorce or there's some other break or your parent is just simply not able to be attached, maybe because they were not raised, Mm -hmm. they were not mothered or fathered or parented appropriately. And so we also pass that on. Is there a way retroactively to really reparent ourselves or for people who are maybe grew up here oriented and felt like they never really developed a proper sense of self? Or I, I think that the metaphor of planting a bulb, that it must first take hold for growth to commence and bearing fruit to become a possibility, like what has to happen for maturation? Is there a way for people who feel stuck, like maybe they never really matured properly to go back and do that work now? Oh, it's uh, the good thing about relationship, it's never too late. And the the answer uh, of cascading care of uh, trying to find yourself in the context of, of nurturing those relationships where we feel taken care of and preserving those relationships we're responsible to take care of. That is lifelong, and it, it can go on and on well into the 90s to be part of this. My mother was doing f- phenomenal work in her 90s, 
in uh, she got involved in a program of being a surrogate grandmother for single parents. And so she had all of these honorary grandchildren who perceived her as their, their grandmother. But the health that comes out of re-knitting yourself into an intergenerational village of attachment can be phenomenal. And it's never too late, both in terms of giving and receiving. The beautiful thing about it is that there's a whole lot of healing just in giving, in really taking it seriously to be the answer to what another needs in terms of attachment. So much of what we didn't receive can be righted when we in turn become the answer, the provider rather than the seeker. And the other part that is amazing about humans is our ability to recover and bounce back if we can find the sadness about Mm -hmm. what didn't work. When we realize the holes that were there and we didn't feel cared for, we didn't feel significant. When we allow ourselves to feel sad about this, the grieving is amazing in its ability to deliver a more sound, healthy, individuated self. We can also find dignity and honor and selfhood in being in providing this care. My mother was a perfect example who came from a tragic family herself where the abuse was significant to be able to turn that around in the providing of it. And then, of course, the the natural healing, just simply from embracing the sadness where there were holes where care should have been. One other, you know, part that I think is really helpful, and particularly in America, where we seem to be entrapped, and maybe this is true in Canada as well, but entrapped in this bullying culture. Can you talk a little bit about what is underneath the sort of the essence of the bully and how that happens in the absence of attachment? Like what the, how those, how children create the hierarchy themselves? Yes, it is a very much of a tragic development that so many of our children are developing this vicarious or at least latent bully response to take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable instead of to take care of them. But it turns out that all mammals, we're all similar in this. We we only really have two ways of attaching a whole a lot of instincts around depending or seeking and the answer to those instincts around providing or the alpha or displacement instincts to take charge, etc. And so those sets of instincts are very important. As children, of course, it's about depending upon somebody to take care of us. Now, in our children, because we have thought that we needed to start getting them to be independent as soon as possible, uh, we've made a huge mistake on not inviting their dependence. And also because they've been peer-oriented, where they lose their feelings of caring and responsibility, it turns out that the alpha instincts, these instincts to displace, if they are not tamed by feelings of caring and responsibility, if the feelings are lost, they turn very ugly into taking advantage of the weak and vulnerable rather than taking care of. You can think of Mother Teresa, who very alpha, 
dominant individual, but all her energy was to take care of the weak and the vulnerable. You can think of others with high displacement instincts, political leaders, who have exactly the opposite instinct uh, to be able to take advantage of the weak and vulnerable. And that differentiates the provider from the bully. So it it, it is an instinct base, but when they're when we lose the feelings, when children become peer-oriented, and they're not covered by an adult who's taken care of them, they're not covered in cascading care, the combination of being driven to displace as well as losing feelings of caring and responsibility are the perfect storm, the perfect recipe for creating a bully response. And that bully response is rife on the internet. It's rife in leadership almost everywhere now because when you have a strong instinct to displace, you always seek to be the top. But we foolishly do not choose our leaders in our society of those who take care of, but those who feel responsible. So we have a problem. We really do have a problem. It's not only with our children. It is systemic in our society. Yeah. But if we go back to nature, which I think you're arguing, it's also... It seems so disordered and so unnatural, but like the story of the elephants, for example, where they yes. lost all the adult men, where they culled the population and all these adolescent elephants who were seemingly no longer dependent on their parents were let loose. Like they became bullies and they were killing rhinos and doing insane things. And it wasn't until the adult elephants were reintroduced that they stopped. Yeah. So it's in our biology. Absolutely. Yeah. Like the biggest lesson of the book seems to be that to to do what we actually intuitively feel and know and to let our children evolve, which again, I think we love the idea of control. But even when you go back to having a newborn, I went to a great mom's group with this woman, Tandy, and she was so helpful because she was like, everything is a phase. Like you're not going to... Mm. This mm. your child might be waking up today and there's nothing you can do about it. And then tomorrow they're just going to stop and they're going to grow out of it. And I remember at the beginning of starting this journey with my first son, Max, I was like, how am I going to teach him to do this and this? And then I'm like, oh, he's just maturing, right? <laughs> yeah, like he's just growing up. That's the actual issue. When children attach to us, are seek in the dependent mode, our trust in us, are leaning on us to be taken care of. Most things will take care of themselves. Development is spontaneous. They'll yeah. move through this. We are much too worried as parents about doing things rather than simply being the answer to our children and preserving the relationship, you know, with them. If we if we put even a little bit of energy into preserving and nurturing their attachments to us, making it easy for them to depend upon us, giving them the sense of being taken care of, letting them know what we can hold on to him through thick and thin, uh, that we won't let anything come between. Oh my goodness, would that make a difference in our world? And then our, we would find our children in orbit around us. And the more they're in orbit around us, the more natural power we have to take care of them. But it really is in our instincts. You can't get at this through books, although I would like to think that my book would make a difference. It really is something that you have to discover in inside. 
Yeah. And that so much of this isn't about intervening or teaching. It's just being there, right? And holding space. Yes. And then naturally that it evolves. And like, I loved, you don't mind if I list these, the seven principles of natural discipline. Mm. Use connection, not separation, to bring a child into line. When problems occur, work the relationship, not the incident. When things aren't working for the child, draw out tears instead of trying to teach a lesson. Solicit good intentions instead of demanding good behavior. Draw out the mixed feelings instead of trying to stop impulsive behavior. And when dealing with an impulsive child, try scripting the desired behavior instead of demanding maturity. And when unable to change the child, try changing the child's world. So I love that. It's about, Mm. it's because it always goes back right to the relationship. And yes. The idea that, of course, they're learning, but they have to learn it themselves. Yes. I love number four, solicit good intentions instead of demanding good behavior. Because kids mess up. So it's like our job as parents to make it safe for them to do. Yes, and they need somebody to believe in them. Somebody that it feels like we're on their side. Like These are relational issues. If our partners didn't feel this, they'd be deal breakers. If we used what our partners cared about against them... It, it could be a deal breaker. And mm-hmm. so the same thing is true for our children, only tenfold more, if not more, because we are there or meant to be their designated answer to their attachment needs in, in life. So yes, it is about taking care of the relationship and nature will take care of the rest, but we need to take care of that relationship. And we've been letting our children fall through the cracks. And we've actually been thinking uh, again that they need friends when they actually need family. Yeah. And it's funny too, like your summaries of what peer-to-peer friendships look like at that age is pretty funny. It's primarily, hey, like there's no depth, right? There's no resonance. Mm. They're not able to feel, or in most instances, there's not much vulnerability. Because that's- In many cases, yes. That's dangerous. So it's this very surface peripheral thing and there's no harm in it when they're just capering around and playing together. But when that's- the relationship. Yes, when that is where they seek their answers, that is unbearable and getting wounded. And uh, to add to that, Elise, if if uh, if children are well attached to their parents, it, it goes through phases of uh, senses and to being with, to being like, to belonging, to a sense of sign- significance and emotional attachment. When they get to the place where it seems right to give their heart to those that they're they're attached to. And even later on, to give all that is within their heart that unfolds, they will select the kind of friends automatically that will be better for them and that will not be in competition. Uh, the, The problem is if peers come too soon in their life and they start orbiting around them, they never developed develop the kind of depth of attachment that's required to where they can truly feel fulfilled and intimacy is possible. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Dr. Gordon Neufeld. For more on his work, pick up a copy of his book, Hold On to Your Kids, Why Parents Need to Matter More Than Peers, and visit his site at neufeldinstitute.org. Newfeld is N-E-U-F-E-L-D. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. 
hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.